Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father and gracious God, on this most important day and this most important week, we need a word from you. Holy Spirit, come. Open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. Speak, Lord, for your servants seek to hear. In Jesus' precious name, amen. How did he do it and why? We come to the most important week of the year. In fact, we come to the most important week in all of human history. So the preacher has a massive problem, the how to eat an elephant problem. And the answer is one bite at a time. We have to choose focus. It is simply too magisterial and too amazing to hit all the depths of it. So we have to choose a vantage point, a particular way in to the mystery, which is the deepest mystery of all in the universe. I used to have this over my desk from Rudyard Kipling. I keep six honest serving men. They taught me all I knew. Their names are what and why and when and how and where and who. Those are the six questions. We're going to choose two of them. How did he do it and why? Everybody with me? All right, now I want you to think for a second. You already know the text, but I want you to think. How is Jesus portrayed as he crests this hill to enter Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday? Answer, he carefully and deliberately sends his disciples to make arrangements for his arrival in the city, and the narrative is at pains to show that Jesus left nothing to chance. The Jesus whom we meet this morning is purposive, willful, determined, and in control every step of the way. Listen to the text as he instructs his disciples. This is Luke 19, verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say, The Lord has need of it. The best way to translate that, verse 31, is, and that's an order. All the verbs are quite striking. Go into the village on which you will find a colt tied. Untie it and bring it here. Oh, and by the way, if anybody asks you, there's a contingency plan. In other words, this is all done decently and in order. It's been planned for very properly and very capably. In fact... In Luke's gospel, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem in chapter 9, verse 51. And now we're in chapter 19, and he finally got there. He's been in charge the whole way. This is his mission. The Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. He is doing this according to the Father's plan. Here's Peter 
in his Pentecost sermon. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. It is the plan of God, but it is Jesus' submission to his plan and Jesus' determination to fulfill this plan that is vital for us this morning. You never get the sense that he doesn't see it coming or that he's somehow shocked at the next development that unfolds. The creed says it this way, for us and for our salvation, you say it every week, he came down from heaven, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made human, he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and he was suffered and was buried for us and for our salvation. It was purposive. Jesus' posture on Palm Sunday is in fact the posture that he will have the whole rest of the week. Not my will, but yours be done. It is finished, totally in control, and not to be missed at the very end. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Always in charge, always submissive, always clear, always willful, always submissive. John 13 is magnificent. It's the foot washing scene, so we often miss this part. But let me just remind you of the description that John gives at the beginning of that scene. Having loved his own who were in the world, it says, Jesus loved him, loved them to the end, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. Do you hear the purposiveness nature of that? And you had perhaps the most magnificent summation of this plan in this morning's epistle. Did you catch it in Philippians 2? It's a magnificent story that can be described in the mathematical symbol of the parabola. It actually goes all the way back to where Jesus started. Have this mind among yourselves, says St. Paul in that passage, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and became a man, and becoming a man, he became an obedient servant, and obedient unto death, even death on a cross. So he was all the way up, and he comes all the way down into humanity, into servanthood, into death, even the diabolical and hideous death of the cross, in charge the whole way, all the way up, all the way down. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's a parabola all the way down and all the way up and it's got a shape and it has a purpose and Jesus is fulfilling the purpose from the moment he leaves God's right hand through this morning all the way to Good Friday and beyond. Are you all with me? One more passage just so that I can gang up on you. (laughs) You already know this one too. It's the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12 which is sometimes called the hall of faith in comparison to the hall of fame. Therefore, it says, having gone through chapter 11 and talked about all these incredible witnesses to the faith, Abraham and so on, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every sin and weight that clings so closely and run the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, And then it describes from that moment on the ministry of Jesus in a magnificent way. Who, listen, for the sake of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. 
Why did he do what he did? For the sake of the joy that was set before him, for the sake of the joy of the Father's will, for the sake of the joy of his bride, the church, for you and for me. That's why he did what he did. There's never any question the whole time he's in charge. It's submissive. It's voluntary. It's clear. The great late Bobby Richardson of New York Yankees fame once offered a prayer at a fellowship of Christian athletes meeting, which has become a classic in its brevity and its poignancy. Listen to this. Dear God, your will... Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Amen. You want the posture of our Lord cresting over the Mount of Olives this week? At any point this week in the garden, at the Last Supper, in front of Pilate, in front of Herod, on the cross, it's always the same. Your will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Amen. That's it. It's purposive, it's determined, it's submissive, it's willful, it's voluntary. We all together so far. That's the first question, that's the how. Now the why. You know the answer to this too, it's John 3.16, is it not? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Ephesians 2, Paul puts it this way, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which with, which with, each, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Because of the great love with which he loved us makes me think back to, since we're in his story, I'm allowed to recall previous sermons, but it makes me think back to the prodigal son, which is really, really the parable of the waiting father, as the point was made. And you remember all the verbs, right? A long way off, he said, and he saw him, and he had compassion, and he ran, and he embraced him, and he kissed him. All those verbs. And in Scotland, in a parish one day, the, 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 the Church of Scotland minister decided to do something radical, and for his children's sermon, he decided to go out into the town and get a bunch of the, the street kids. And he brought them all in, and he told them the parable of the prodigal son, all these street kids and the parishioners were horrified because all these dirty street kids were in the middle of their chancel steps. And when he told the story, he stopped in the middle when the son was coming home and he said to the kids, what is the father going to do? And one of the kids yelled out, he'll bash him because it's the only thing that they knew. That's the way they were treated all the time. It's the only thing that they knew. They all knew what the father was going to do. He was going to cream him and discipline him until he had no more strength left. But that's not what happened. That's not what happened because of the great love with which he loved us. Here's Romans 5. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And my own personal favorite, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, if you're taking notes, it almost bursts off the page in the Greek. See what love the Father has given unto us that we might become children of God. And so we are. Boom. Two stories about God's love, then a question, then I'm done. 
Karl Barth was undoubtedly one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century. He didn't come to America very often. You may know him, you may not. He was a Swiss theologian. He wrote over 10,000 pages of systematic theology. All of his volumes sit on my shelf. It's intimidating just to look at the books, nevertheless read them. Toward the end of his life, he made one of his rare tours of the U.S., and he went to various universities and seminaries. During a Q&A at one of his seminaries, one of the students posed what seemed a very hard question to answer. It was a student, not one of the professors. Dr. Bart, you've written extensively on every aspect of theology and church history. I'm wondering if you could sum it all up in a sentence or two, at which point the room fell silent. Dr. Bart just stood there for a moment, carefully considering how to respond. And as the people who were there tell it, they said some of the professors and students at the seminary began to feel awkward that such a trifling question would be asked of such a brilliant scholar. Finally, Bart turned to the student and succinctly replied, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And there isn't a person here who can't relate to that. It's not simply that he did it. It's why he did it. It's because he represents the love of God. For the love of God is broader than the measure of men's minds, and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind, as the hymn puts it. Or here's another way around. In Carrie Wyatt Kent's book, Deeply Loved, I like the title of that book a lot. She's trying to write on this very theme, the love of God. And she tells the story of two of her friends who have four kids, and who from time to time fostered other children. And in this particular case, they welcomed a four-year-old foster child into their home. The welfare organization told them that this son, Jonathan, would be staying with them and their four other children for about a month. Five months later, after a couple of attempts to place him back with his mother, he's still living with them. She writes, the process has been messy and complicated. This little boy is sweet, charming, and winsome at times, but angry and confused at other times. So sometimes he cuddles and hugs, but at other times, listen, he yells, scratches, hits, and even bites. My friends have loved this child, she says, even as he tries their patience, even as they sometimes despair over the difficulties his birth family faces their poverty, their illness, and so much else. But when they tuck him in at night, they ask him the same question they ask all their other four children. Jonathan, when God looks at you, what does he say? By the way, what a great question. Think about it for a second. You see what they're asking? When God looks at you, What does he say? And they have taught him to answer as all the other children answer, and he does. He says, I sure do love that little boy. Boom. Now I've got one question to conclude. I became a Christian when I was 18. I was baptized as an adult. It's another story for another time. The uh, the prayer book actually has the baptism of adults as the norm in the baptismal service. Infants are the exception. I was actually baptized in somebody's pool in the state of Maine. We had in our parish a man who became a Christian in his 40s and 50s, and when he got to know some of the college students, he took a particular interest in me. And every once in a while, he would sort of corner me after the service, and he would look at me and he would say, Kendall, 
You have no idea how blessed you are. I wasted 40 plus years of my life before I discovered who Jesus was. I never knew the gospel. I never knew God's love was for me. Don't ever take it for granted. Never forget how lucky you are to be in your teens and to know the core of the gospel. It's the most important truth in the world. He meant every word. I think of him all the time. And here's the Holy Week question, brothers and sisters. It's not enough to talk about theory. you got to get to practice. There's all the difference in the world between Jesus loves the world, Jesus loves the church, Jesus loves people, and Jesus died for me. It's not simply Jesus Christ is Lord. It's Jesus Christ is my Lord. That's why I like that story that she tells. When God looks at you, what does he say? Oh, how I love that little boy. It's love for him. And the question this week is, you've got to crest the hill with Jesus, and you've got to look at all the events of this week, and you've got to say, do I, do I really believe that God did that all for me? That he loves me that much, that he knows me better than I know myself, that even the hairs on my head are numbered in his sight. Nothing is more important than that. So I give you Holy Week, brothers and sisters, and especially Palm Sunday. How did he do it? God's will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Why? Because he loved the world, but most especially, he loves all of us, even you and me. In Jesus' name, amen.